You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello, I am Mark Inetpanos. And I'm Leo Stevens. And welcome to The Brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. G'day, Leo. What have you got for us today? Hi, Mark. Um, Today I want to talk about Agile. So Agile is a system of management designed to allow small teams to work efficiently and autonomously. As the legend goes, a group of Silicon Valley software developers were on a ski trip together in 2001, and they were collectively frustrated with the complex management processes they had seen in the software industry. So during the nights on this trip, they brainstormed a new model of light-touch management for software teams, and they wrote a document that became known as the Agile Manifesto, and which continues to underpin Agile management practice. The four core principles of the Manifesto are that individuals and interactions come above process and tools, that working software is preferred over comprehensive documentation, that customer collaboration is preferred over contract negotiation, and that responding to change is preferred over following a plan. Since its development, this system has been applied to a much wider set of industries than just the software systems. And there's a whole set of kind of jargon and surrounding systems that are wrapped around this agile management style, like how groups of people can be referred to as squads or how pieces of work they do can be called sprints. But regardless of the terminology, the important fact is that the agile management system must enable small teams to work autonomously, to interact with customers, and enable the continual improvement of their product and service over time. Very interesting. So some questions. So if you're a micromanager, then the idea of agile management would probably keep you awake at night. Yeah, well, I think it was partially a kickback not necessarily against micromanagement, but against overly bureaucratic management. So systems and companies where every process had to be documented, where there were policies and procedures for all possible decisions, that was really what Agile was designed to combat. So it's meant to put the autonomy, the discretion, back inside these small teams of five to ten people who are assigned a project. That's what you might call a sprint. You know, It might be a week's work, it might be five weeks' work, but how that project gets delivered, the tools that are used, the resources that are required, those decisions are left up to the team rather than higher level management. So it's really about putting that discretion in the hands of the team that is actually working on the project. So who holds oversight and how does, or is that just simply before you start the sprint, there is an oversight and at the end of the sprint when there's a determined set of rules or? Yeah, so I mean, each team would have a leader they would be responsible for reporting the results of each sprint or you know the team's progress to higher management. But it's light touch. So the higher management gets to assign kind of what the important pieces of work are and estimate about how long they should take. But from there on, the, the process that's followed to get that piece of work done is in the hands of the team. So the team is responsible for delivering the work, but they are not responsible for you know, routine reporting and uh, all the processes around how that work gets done. They're just responsible for delivering that piece of work. So what would be the unique 
and distinguishing qualities that a leader of an agile management team would have? Great interpersonal skills would probably be it because in order for an agile team to work, people have to be communicating with each other very effectively and all of them must be empowered to work productively and be incentivized to do so. You know, if you are in a team or a system where there is very little oversight, it's also it can be easy to get away with doing no work at all. So uh, a team leader has to be pretty clear to ensure that their team is all working productively, despite the fact that there isn't this systemic approach to forcing them to do so in a particular way. Okay, so let me talk about my topic for this week, which is conference organization. So a conference can be defined as a formal meeting of people with a shared interest and typically a meeting that takes place over several days. In the academic world, conferences are very important aspects of the culture. And they provide scientists with opportunities to showcase their work to their peers, to network and recruit, or even be recruited. And in addition, it can contribute to the scientist's key performance indicator if, for example, the scientist is involved in the organizing of the conference or has a prestigious talk status, such as invited plenary or keynote. Oh, and did I mention that conferences are usually held in very cool locations? So there are several financial models for organizing conferences. I just want to very briefly look at one of these examples. So an organization would provide the venue, whereas the conference itself is run by scientists as a volunteer activity, which means scientists aren't actually paid to organize the conference. And actually, even the people that organize would still have to pay a fee to attend their own conference. And these fees can be in the order of about $1,000 for a couple of days. And on top of that, you would need to add hotel costs, subsistence, and travel expenses. So going to conferences is pretty expensive. And these are, very briefly, the key aspects of conference organization. So it's an unusual thing in professional life to have these sort of conferences. You know, if you're a plumber, you would not necessarily go to a plumbing conference what is the history of this being a core part of the academic industry? Well, before the worlds of publishing, this is how people would announce their research findings. So they would go to a conference or, or an organization. You can think of the Royal Society, which is an, a found, uh, an organization in the UK that was founded in 16-something 1660 or 1662, and they would have these meetings where people would come and present their research findings, and they would then be discussed by their peers and judged on their credit. And that has evolved over the years into these large business arrangements, but also a fact of academic life that if you want to network, recruit, or present your findings, you then go to a conference, but you, would, you wouldn't always publish your best findings in the conference proceedings. That has completely changed over the last couple of hundred years. Now you would go to a conference and you would generally present historical facts. So you would present work that you've already published, whereas it used to be you would present new work that you had not published. Yeah, it's interesting. I did always view conferences as the kind of leading edge of work. So you, you think that the journal publications are actually ahead of conference publications and what's spoken about at conferences? 
most people that go, or at least most of my colleagues that I know, would very rarely talk about something that they haven't published before. So it's generally a conference would be, and some, although the conference can be slightly ahead of publication because they may talk about work that has been accepted for publication but hasn't been actually published yet. So you can't see it yet if you look for it, but the people that are presenting know that their work has been published so they can give you a preview but a lot of the times, if you go to a conference, you listen to people talking about the work they did in the past. And sometimes that can be years ago. So it's a historical event. So other than a trip to a nice location, what is the key benefit for a researcher in attending said conference? Be seen, get your work out there to a new audience, and network, network and network. And like I said, prestige. So if you get invited to be a keynote presenter at a conference that's something you would put on your cv but you would also use if you want to move between institutions or for maybe obtaining a pay a pay increase at your own university will add to your key performance indicators to showcase that you're a leader in your field now final question that we should definitely touch on you know it's still the era of the plague COVID 19 is around us all this must have torpedoed many a conference how, how are these companies and organizations responding? Uh, they are scrambling from what I can see. I was recently asked to give an invited talk at a virtual conference where I would still have to pay. And I'm, I declined because I cannot figure out what I am paying for. I cannot go there. I cannot be physically in the same room to have face-to-face contact and tap people on the shoulder and walk up to them and say, well, to an extent you can do this obviously online, but conferences are struggling at the moment and the people that organize the conferences are struggling and probably people that like to travel to conferences are struggling. Fair enough. Well, we should leave it there in the interest of time. Thanks, Mark, for the wrap-up of conferences. Thanks, Leo. See you next time. See you next time.